Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're going to talk with Janice Laster, MD, a gastroenterologist here in Washington, D.C., Dr. Lester and I co-authored Beyond the Calories is the Problem in the Processing, a review of trends in dietary patterns, ultra-processed foods, chronic diseases, and mortality in the U.S., which was recently published in Current Treatment Options in Gastroenterology. Board certified in gastroenterology, internal medicine, and obesity medicine, Dr. Laster's research focus is on nutrition and obesity medicine within the field of gastroenterology. A Nestle Nutrition Fellow, she's a member of the Obesity Society, the American College of Gastroenterology, and a Physician Nutrition Specialist Diplomat. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Janice. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you ladies today. Yeah, this should be a great one. Um, I think our listeners are going to be very excited about this topic. I agree. It's definitely a hot topic, um, as it should always have been, but uh, definitely a lot of buzz right now. That's right. So so what motivated you to get involved with GI and, and to incorporate nutrition in your patient care? Um, the love for GI initially started in medical school. I thought it had kind of the best of all worlds. Um, my mom thought it was a little crazy, but I liked the, <laughs> the bloody side of it with the um, emergencies in the ICU. I like mm-hmm. the the sort of mundane kind of normal day-to-day things with typical screening colonoscopies and upper endoscopies. And then you get the clinic visits as well. So that's kind of GI gave, gives you a little bit of everything. And the nutrition portion came in during um, fellowship when I realized there were so many patients that we were seeing that I don't think we were necessarily getting to the root cause of what their issues were. Um, there's so much abdominal pain, constipation, heartburn. I mean, we see these things routinely and we do the procedures for them, give them a medication, the patients continue to have these symptoms. Um, And I started to realize, hmm, this diet history is likely a a part of why you're having so many of these symptoms. And then I realized I am getting zero education during my fellowship about what I should be doing for these patients. I know Mm -hmm. how I eat, but that's not necessarily evidence-based. That's an end of one. So mm-hmm. I said, I need to figure out where, where, do, where do I go from here? How do I learn how to be able to give patients um, some quality education to be able to help them more? So that's kind of where my, my deep dive into this whole of nutrition came about. That story is wonderful. And I have to say, probably not that uncommon. I yeah. think when, when pre- clinicians get into the field, they start to realize that, man, maybe some nutrition background would have been really helpful. Um, so it's great that you recognize that and you actually pursued getting yourself the nutrition education you needed to better take care of your patients. Oh, 100%. Um, you you get almost no education in medical school about it, and you're so focused on kind of the big sciences in medical school that you it just gets pushed to the wayside, which I really think is unfortunate. The more that I've learned um, during my nutrition, clinical nutrition fellowship, and the more that I've you know learned, and the, the more I'm able to take care of my patients now, I wish I was able to incorporate this so much more during my residency and fellowship. It would have been mm-hmm. a, a much better a tool to have. So. Mm-hmm. So in your clinical practice, what are the most common diet-related issues that you see? Um, Let's see. The big, I'll say maybe the big five are abdominal pain, um, 
let's see, heartburn, mm-hmm. constipation, diarrhea, and and then we said the other question that people ask is about weight loss, of course, or mm-hmm. um, trying to get weight off. So those are kind of maybe the the top five things we probably see in a clinical practice. And would you see a number of those in one of your patients, or is it typically they're coming in for one real issue that they're complaining about? Usually, once we get to the root cause of it, it's a combination of things. Um, Typically, I see a patient that has abdominal pain, and once we get to the root cause and rule out kind of what I tell them, the big, bad, and ugly things like the cancers and, you know, anything or pancreatitis or anything with the gallbladder, once we rule all of those things out, um, we get down to it and we realize, oh, you also have bloating, also have, Mm -hmm. you know, early satiety. You also don't have good bowel movements, and those are likely things that are causing you to have that abdominal pain. And the reason you're constipated is usually because of whatever the diet is that you're consuming. So mm-hmm. um, people, normally no one wants to hear that because they don't want to change the diet. <laughs> it's not the popular answer. It's really hilarious. Well, it's not the people, quick fix, I guess, right? No, exactly. And they want to pick, they want to peel. They, sometimes it's almost as if they want something to be wrong, mm-hmm, um, which mm-hmm. is always funny. Um, but, you know, we make a joke about it and, you know, I tell them, give me some time. We'll get there. This will all be better. And we all go kind of on the journey together and kind of joke along the way. But so in, in your experience, what, what are some of the, the tips you would give to a fellow healthcare provider who might be just starting to get into the world of, of nutrition and GI diseases? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, actually, it's a little bit simpler now because there's so many conferences um, and social media is a, a good tool as well. Um, as far as Twitter and Instagram, there's a lot of, of the big name providers that are in those spaces. Um, there's lifestyle medicine courses. There's obesity medicine courses. There mm-hmm. um, the ACN courses. There are um, Aspen, which is a nutrition conference. It's um, interesting. You, you've have you been to Aspen? Mm-hmm. I am so I, impressed by that. Yeah, I went. La- I presented last year. It was awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I actually haven't been to Aspen. Um, oh, I've, really? I've been to the Maryland version of, of Aspen, but not to the um, the nationwide one. I'm, it's on my to do list. It's, a, it's an awesome conference, and two of my main mentors from the Nestle Nutrition Fellowship are huge in Aspen. So um, Steve McClave and Bob Martindale are kind of the famous old guys that everybody runs to and flocks to. So. They encouraged all of the Nestle fellows to go. That's fantastic. That's good to know. And it's good to know that it appeals to um, a clinician who maybe doesn't have the nutrition background. Um, Like, I I always think of it as being a very dietitian centric conference. It is. Um, And we were trying to get them to do a couple of more things that may be a little bit more physician-centered to get just to kind of gather some more attention for physicians to get them a little bit more involved so they will incorporate it more and to see the value of dietitians and, you know, to kind of being in your practice, especially in a GI practice. Um, It's a huge, huge value to have somebody that can give them that one-on-one time um, that you may not have as a gastroenterologist. Absolutely. It's definitely one of the things we talk about with integrative medicine, team-based medicine, and knowing when to refer. Yes. Um, You can't possibly know everything. So speaking of that, what would be an indication you would typically refer your patients out to for a dietitian? Is there anything specifically you, you're utilizing a dietitian for that maybe others could also be doing in their practice? Um, let's see. 
I may be a little bit different because I have the additional training um, right. and I do spend, uh, you know, a lot of time in that area. But one, one particular thing that I find to be really important is when somebody has a true diagnosis of celiac disease and, and I mean, biopsy proven, um, proven by serology, not just, you know, you have a little bit of bloated if you have a gluten. That meant real mm-hmm. celiac disease. Um, and so those patients, I feel, really need to sit down and have detailed understanding of what is in gluten and how to not have any things to mix in. Because it's sometimes things that are very subtle. Um, or I had a patient that is Italian, and we couldn't figure out why he would relapse. And he finally told us, well, you know, I do so well Monday through Saturday. Mm. And we go, so what happens on Sunday? Sunday? And he goes, well, I eat at my mom's. And I'm like, so what does your mom cook? He goes, she's Italian. We have pasta. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we're like, well, you just throw out everything out of the window that you just did Monday through Saturday because your yeah. inflammation starts back over again. So these are people that really need a dietitian to, to go through those packages of crackers that I see lo- lurking in their bags when they're in the clinic. And I'm like, that's <laughs> gluten, you know? Um, so these are things that I know we kind of skim over in our clinics, but with a dietitian, I think they do a really good job of get- getting people to understand um, what is gluten and why we care so much about them not being um, getting those contaminants. Yeah, that, thank you. That's very helpful. I think uh, both Janet and I are well aware that gluten hides in things. Um, yes. And oh. when you're when you're new to this, it's extremely overwhelming. And if mm-hmm. the, you had someone to guide you, wouldn't that be so much easier? It would because somebody could warn you about soy sauce. Right. Yes. <laughs> the, the little things like that that you just don't know until yes. you can't figure out why every time you go out for sushi, you feel terrible. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe because I have another food. Is it the third allergy. or fourth ingredient in soy sauce is wheat? I forget which. I can't remember, but it, yeah, it's 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 in there, but it's pretty far down. So if you just glance at it, you might not see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely where a dietitian or or even a um, like a certified nutrition specialist health coach could really come in and help you find those things. Oh yeah. Now I was really excited when uh, your article was published. So this review you wrote, what? sparked that? How'd that come about? Um, I think it got sparked from a talk I did at Aspen last year, actually. Um, During this nutrition pathway, I kind of went down a deep, dark hole of trying to understand um, more about processed foods and what made foods processed and what was in them. And I started learning more about emulsifiers and additives and um, and did a talk on that at Aspen that kind of made everybody's, you know, everybody go crazy because they're in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found the kind of a correlation about kind of when we started to become more of an industrialized country, it kind of correlated with um, increased autoimmune diseases um, and increased processed foods and being having things that were more convenient. And that's kind of where it came from for me is kind of going down that hole and figuring out hmm, there's that, we have a lot of processed foods. And it, initially people, they got um, approved as generally like recognized as safe because of some issues with the FDA in the 90s when it was taking a long time to get things approved. And realized at that point, they started putting them in everything. And they're so kind of ubiquitous in our condiments and our, you know, in our food. So we're getting a whole lot more than we were back when they initially were approved for consumption in like the 50s. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And then and I don't you think that's part of the issue, perhaps? Uh, maybe it is generally recognized it's safe in very low doses. But when exactly. it's in everything and you're being exposed to it at every meal, and that's when we're really seeing a problem. 
Exactly. Exactly. If you don't mind my asking, can you explain what an emulsifier is? Sure. Um, An emulsifier is basically a substance that's put into a food to make something chef-stable, something to make it be able to preserve. So back in, you know, the early days, salts were things to kind of make things stable, to last longer, and to cure meats and that sort of thing. But when you fast forward to to today, it's kind of in, you know, mayonnaise. So there's also things to kind of keep things together, um, to keep them from separating. So oil and, you know, water to keep things uh, congealed. So salad dressings, um, things like that. Um, They also make things stay more stable on the shelf for longer periods of time, keep them fresh, keep the color, make them taste better. Um, So they're stabilizing agents in a sense. Um, And they're, they're kind of everywhere and in everything. So is it always oil and air or oil, water and salt? Or is there other things that they're using that people may not realize are not necessarily good in this form? I don't think I would what, repeat the question. Uh, the emulsifiers, are they always just oil based? Oh, no. So emulsifiers in general, they kind of fall underneath this category of an additive. Um, and so they can be anything like uh, something to make things not foam, um, to bulk things um, like food color agents, um, stabilizers, preservatives, things that are thickeners. Um, even sweeteners, they're all kind of in the fall under the category of an emulsifier. And normally they contain like a, a hydrophobic and a hydrophilic component so that if you have that water and kind of lipid fraction and you allow these things to kind of mix. So something that was otherwise unmixable, um, these things help to keep make them stay together um, to help increase that shelf life, to enhance the flavor, kind of make the texture better and prevent things from dispersing. So it makes them look better. If you had a thing of mayo without those emulsifiers in them, it would look gross and people wouldn't want to eat it. So that's kind of what they use it for. For Think of fruit snacks, that gelatin and fruit snacks that keep those things together so we want to eat it and so it tastes good when we eat them. Um, and and it's, it really dinners. is about how long it's shelf-stable, right? Like that mayonnaise would be fine for a couple of days, but since uh-huh. it's been sitting on the shelf for a couple of months, now it's starting to separate and look gross. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, maybe things shouldn't sit on the shelves for years. That might be the yeah, problem. Exactly. So as the authors of this review, can you tell us a little bit about why they're bad for us? Um, I can start. And so where this initially came from was I looked at a bunch of um, preliminary studies kind of in mice and in kind of human models um, to see kind of what was happening when, um, what did our bodies do with these emulsifiers? And some of the things that I found were pretty interesting. Um, so first of all, when we, our bodies simply don't really know what to do with some of these emulsifiers over time, as far as in our small bowel. And as a gastroenterologist, this is what I look at in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. So uh, you start to see these micro breaks in the mucosa, um, which allow bacteria to kind of be able to sneak into um, your system because it in it kind of breaks down the good bacteria that you would have in your small bowel, um, decreasing the mucin layer that you have in your small bowel as well so that it allows things to break through it. 
Um, and so when you have that, think of that as an inflammatory response. So if you scratch your hand um, and it gets red and you starts to get puffy, that's an inflammatory response, right? The same thing happens in your small bowel. So on a small level, that's kind of what's happening with these emulsifiers when your body has no idea what to do with these agents. And so what was um, interesting to me was what was being found in some of these mice studies is this was causing an inflammatory cascade, which was leading to metabolic syndrome um, and the mice having fatty liver and the mice having increased um, high blood pressure and elevated um, blood glucose and lipids. And so that's what was interesting to me about when I first started to look more into these emulsifiers. Granted, we've not been able to, you know, be able to do this in human studies as of, well, not technically. There was a trial recently done by Kevin Hall that we discussed in our paper. But um, so these are, that was what was interesting to me because that kind of went along with my hypothesis in the beginning that increased processed foods also caused you to have these increased risk for metabolic syndrome, meaning obesity, um, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, and diabetes. And that's kind of, that was one of the things that kind of prompted us to talk about this a lot in our paper um, and kind of in a human model. That is fascinating. And it, it just tells me that you working with Lee is just match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> that it is. We are very much on the, We keep turning up together in spots we didn't even know it was going to happen. It, we are on the same track. We first met and we had lunch together and we literally were finishing each other's sentences. That literally <laughs> was true. a match made in heaven. <laughs> That's true. And that's another social media win. We, we actually really officially met over Twitter. Yes. Uh, and then we were like, let's have lunch because you're right around the corner. So yay, social media, med Twitter. Definitely. And I was new to Twitter as well. And I was like, eh, maybe I'll try this thing out. And I was like, oh, it's great, actually. I it met a great. perfect person for me at GW. Who knew? <laughs> I was actually, I was teaching the PA students yesterday and I told them all that they need to get on Twitter because it makes keeping up with the science so much easier. Um, yes. Because like, for instance, when Kevin Hall's study came out, I heard it from Kevin Hall on Twitter when it came out, right? I didn't have to go and look up the study or wait till the announcement came out. And all my whole network was retweeting it because we all want to hear that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it kind of blew their mind a little bit, actually. They never thought about social media in that way, probably because they grew up with it um, and it's mm. not a foreign concept to them. Um, but to change the way they looked at it. And all of them afterwards were like, wait, what's your handle? I'm going to follow you. So <laughs> I, I hope I converted them. Yeah, Twitter has been awesome for that. I find out about so many studies and I found out about the lifestyle medicine course and the conference mm -hmm. through there. Like it's, it's awesome. You see things when, you know, you get to follow Dean Ornish and, mm -hmm. you know, Caldwell Elsestein. These are all like my heroes and I get to follow them on Twitter and see what they're thinking about the new articles that come out if they agree right. with what I think. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's true. You're getting a, a different take on the articles than you just sitting down and reading them. Of course. Yep. From the author, from the horse's mouth. It's awesome. So what can you tell us about your ongoing research? Let's see. What do I have going on? I am in Madrid right now, and so my brain is all <laughs> over the place. Um, oh, 
One of the things, one of the things that I've been looking at recently um, that uh, Lee and I talked about um, is one another interest that I have is microbiome um, and kind of how those things uh, are being able to be changed by diet. And one of my other thoughts was that hmm, uh, we know in studies from the past that there uh, there's microbiome changes in patients with obesity um, versus lean patients, um, and this was also um, being able to be seen in um, replicated in these emulsifier studies as well. But my question was, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the fact that you already were predestined to have uh, problems with excess weight and that is what affected your microbiome? Or is it the diet that changed your microbiome that made you uh, the propensity to have, to have obesity? And which one came first? So one of the things we were um, trying to determine is um, how quickly can the microbiome be changed by your diet and whether that will affect your weight. And so what we were doing is getting pre-samples of people's stool, essentially, to look at their microbiome, which is in its early stages, so it doesn't tell us everything just yet. But um, I think in the future, we'll, this will be hilarious to us because it'll be like, yeah, you silly people didn't know what this meant. Um, but looking at their pre-microbiome and assessing their weight and other things, all the things that can kind of change your microbiome with a survey, such as, you know, if you were um, breastfed, if you were born by C-section or vaginally, if you're on chronic antibiotics, um, chronic steroids or hormones or head cancer, a host of other things, um, and looking at that microbiome beforehand and then giving them kind of a dietary intervention, um, which we know can change the microbiome rather quickly. Um, with the Mediterranean diet and then checking their microbiome again after said intervention to see if there's a change in weight or a change in the microbiome to kind of a more favorable microbiome. And how long um, are they on that Mediterranean diet? Two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. Yep. So that's very reasonable. You're, you're not asking a ton from your patients. Exactly. Because we know how compliance is. And <laughs> so two weeks is all we're asking. So that's yeah. what we're trying to, to look at now. <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, you should definitely see some changes in two weeks. It'll just be interesting to see um, how quickly it goes back, if it does go back. Oh, yeah. It, it will go back quickly as well. But um, if you can get them to kind of, the, the hope is that we get them to see some light during that tunnel and to feel less bloated during that time, to feel less pain during that time, mm-hmm. to actually be able to have a bowel movement during that time. Um, it's amazing that people don't believe that, yes, if you haven't had a bowel movement in two weeks, that tends to hurt. Yes, you, you, you tend to feel a little bit bloated. Um, yes, you don't feel hungry. Uh-huh, you feel nausea. That, the, and, and they all come to clinic with these exact same complaints, and I finish their sentences, and they think I'm really smart, but I'm like, no, <laughs> no, it's pretty simple, actually. Yeah, you've just seen patients like this over and over again. Yeah. I'm like, you're number six today, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> With our American diet, you are, you're all eating the same. Yeah, it's, it's okay. true. Well, I'm glad you're out there uh, helping them learn the, I guess, the light side, bring them to the light side, away from the dark side of the sad American diet. It's really nice when, you know, when someone kind of trusts you and says they're going to give it a try. I think most of the time they've reached kind of the end of the line and they're so sick of being so fatigued and having that mm. fog and having pain that they're willing to try anything. And they're like, okay, fine. We'll listen to this crazy person and <laughs> see what she says. Um, and it's funny when they come back, they're almost annoyed with me when they come back and they, 
and it worked. It's really funny. Like they, you walk into the room and their hands are crossed. And I'm like, oh, here we go. She's going to be upset with me. And she goes, it worked. I feel better. And I'm like, well, that's, that's great. Right. And she goes, but now I can't have anything. And I'm like, Yes, you can have plenty. I just don't want you to drink, you know, two liters of Coke a day. You know, right. you, you can have plenty. So it's funny. It's always like a, a hilarious conversation when they actually feel better. When they say they're all, none of them believe it's going to work at all. None of them mm-hmm. believe simply having a bowel movement is life changing. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a really important part of being alive. We yeah. all need to do it. Yeah. So it's funny. Um, and another thing you and I agree on is fiber intake. And, I was just thinking uh, about fiber, too, <laughs> speaking of bowel movements. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of talked to him about how um, fire also help, fiber helps with the short-chain fatty acids and also helps um, to kind of help with your microbiome and how you utilize calories. And so it's like it's a difference in how, depending on what you eat, how your body is able to metabolize those calories. So you're better able to handle what you consume and not put on excess weight the more fiber you have. So you're actually able to eat more. And so it's funny because a recent friend's sister from Texas, the land of all things meat, um, I've forgotten to get off of said meat. And she called me like, I have lost 12 pounds since we have spoken and I cannot believe this. So it's, it's funny once they buy in and once they start to see it, then, it then, then the momentum really starts. So that's the nice part when they come back and you see a light. Mm-hmm. So That's great. What are some of the, the things you, I, I know you said that you're, they're kind of coming into you and they're like, oh, I've tried everything, but do you have any other tools that you use for motivating your patients that maybe some of the other healthcare providers who are listening might be able to try? I think one of the things that I do is I acknowledge that it's hard. I acknowledge that it's, it's time consuming. I acknowledge that it's a habit that we form your entire life. If you come to me and you're 50 years old and this is what you've done your entire life, it's very difficult and it's daunting to think about kind of changing that lifestyle. And people will always say, I've been doing this my entire life. And that's their mindset. Um, and that's comfortable. So it's hard to, to change habits. So I think that's one of the things that I... I start off with. And I also make slow changes. Um, mm-hmm. And I meet people where they are. You know, if I, I don't tell people to, you know, wake up one day and to completely be vegan and, you know, plant-based and no drink only water and don't, you know, I, I, you have to meet people where they are um, and try to work within things that they like. First of all, I'm not going to tell everybody to eat black beans. If you, if you may not like black beans and that's okay. <laughs> um, there's, there's many other beans that I can try to get you to eat and mix into things. So I think that's one of the things too. I think some people get frustrated and say, you know, people don't have willpower, which I don't think is true. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that people don't know. There's a lot of things um, for, I mean, for you with a PhD, for us that's gone through medical school, you know, there's a lot of things that we take for granted that we learned mm-hmm. um, that our patients, you know, these are, you know, we think they're simple. But for my patients, they are writing down every word that I say. And I'm like, I'll write this down for you. I want you to just listen right now. You know, we'll give you a handout. But mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I start slowly and I follow up often. Um, and I start with slow steps. I think those are things I think is listening to them and listening to the struggles they've had, I think is important. And kind of just being able to understand that somebody that finally understands them is that doesn't judge them. And I don't. I just tell them, you know, this is hard. I didn't start eating this way overnight. I tell them and I always joke around. I'm like, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> it is the land 
of all things fried and all things are soaked in butter. And so if I can turn over a healthy leaf, then, you know, anybody can. Um, because I grew up eating fried chicken and macaroni and cheese. And these are things that are stables. And, you know, I don't even have a uh, an urge for them anymore like I thought I would. So yeah, your I'm like, taste it's a slow process. Exactly. And I tell them that, too. And also to kind of talk, talk to them kind of on a scientific level, I'm like, you know, when you tell me that you can't live without your Diet Coke, that's kind of true in a sense. It's not you necessarily that can't live. It's your microbiome that wants to live. And those suckers want to live. And so, yeah, they make you feel like you cannot live without the soda. That's sort of true. I was like, so we have to slowly kill off those guys with beans and kale and spinach <laughs> and, and get rid of those so your body craves for you to have a salad instead of craves that soda. Um, and they can't believe it when I say that. I'm like, but I'm, I'm like, I promise you, when I'm on vacation and I'm eating, you know, fried cauliflower, because that's like the, you know, plant-based junk food or, you know, <laughs> something like that, that after about a couple of days of that, I am starving. I'm craving a salad. I was like, I promise you it's true. You'll get, you get there. It but is I true. I actually was uh, recently on my honeymoon and every day for lunch, I had a salad because that's yep. what I really wanted to have after eating the rich food for our wedding and then eating the, even in the evenings, having a, a bigger meal. I was like, oh God, I just need a nice, light, refreshing salad. Plus I was on the beach, you know, perfect exactly. to what food is salad. That is all the time we have for today, Janice. Thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.